Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're going to take our Bibles and turn, please, to the book of Titus, the book of Titus chapter 2, and I see the ushers are coming by with a Sunday evening outline that you can fill in along the way. If you didn't pick one up already, just wave one of them over. They'll be happy to put that in your hands this evening as we open our Bible to Titus chapter 2, and we zero in this evening on the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2. The Word of God says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. Verse 3, The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet and chaste and keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word. Father, I pray that You'd help us now as we look at uh, this very clear, very important, and very provocative passage, that we do so recognizing the culture in which we live has become much like the Cretan culture of old. And Lord, we would desire to stand as Christians as lights in a dark age. So help us, Lord, to study your word, to show ourselves approved, workmen that need not to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Bless each who has come into this place this evening. May the word of God go forth in clarity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A man approached his wife, noticing that she was putting on her makeup and that she'd drawn her eyebrow lines a bit high on her forehead. He said to her, honey, I think you've drawn your eyebrows a bit high on your forehead. She didn't respond, but she sure did look surprised. (laughs) My focus this evening is on Christian cosmetology. Christian cosmetology. And no, I'm not going to suggest that we go into the cosmetology business. I'm sure Christians have already found their way into that industry. After all, it's about $750 billion a year that people invest in cosmetology around the globe. But I've entitled this message Christian Cosmetology because the passage to which we turned has much to say about how the church looks in a very ugly age. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, provides compelling instruction for six different groups of believers. First, there is that instruction in verse 2 to the aged men. Then in verses 3 and 4, instruction for the aged women. Then in verses 4 and 5, instruction for young women. Verse 6, instruction for young men. In verses 7 and 8, instruction for spiritual leaders. And finally, instruction in verse 9 for those who are servants. 
Now, the purpose of these instructions is given to us in verse 10, where we read that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. The King James Version and the English Standard Version actually owe their translation of this passage to Wycliffe, who way back in 1380 translated just exactly the way we see the King James Version translating that phrase, that they would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. The Geneva Bible that the pilgrims carried back in 1557, it was translated, and verse 10 was translated that they may do worship to the doctrine of God. They would show the worth, the value by their engagement in proper Christian conduct. They would show the worth of the doctrine of God. J.B. Phillips, back in 1958, put out the Phillips New Testament translation, and he exaggerates the translation of verse 10 by saying that they are to show themselves utterly trustworthy, a living testament to the teaching of God our Savior. F.F. Bruce suggests that verse 10 can be translated, they should be marked consistently by good faith and thus be ornaments, ornaments, I like that, ornaments of the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, regardless of the translation that one chooses, the behavior of the believer is found here to reflect whether good or evil on the character of God. I love the poem that says, you are writing a gospel each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? The Spirit of God gives to us very practical instructions here in these first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2. You'll remember in Titus chapter 1, he's writing to those who are teaching, according to verse 11, what they ought not. Their mouths must be stopped because they subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. In fact, verse 16, he categorizes these false teachers as being those to every good work they have become reprobate. Now comes contrast. Having looked at the false teachers in verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1, we have a contrast in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And so we read in verse 1, but speak thou the things, speaking to Titus, and he uses the word for just natural, normal conversation. Be involved in conversing in a natural way those things that become sound, literally healthy doctrine, so that men and women, young and old, and even servants and leaders would behave like believers. This passage is about the behavior of believers. Because when believers behave badly, verse 5 of chapter 2 says, God's word is blasphemed. After all, the young women are to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God be not blasphemed. When believers don't behave as believers ought, accusations arise. In verse 8 we read, we ought to have sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Every Christian is called upon to practice Christian cosmetology. 
And as we open our Bibles to Titus chapter 2, these first 10 verses, before we even look at the words that are shared here, it's important for us to come to conclude along two lines of truth that are clearly reflected in this passage. The first line of truth is this. There are God-ordained differences that are recognized in this passage between men and women. There are God-ordained differences reflected in this passage between men and women. He speaks, after all, to groups of young men, old men, young women, and old, and we'll soften it, older women. But there are distinctions between the genders that are placed here before us. We're living in an interesting and frightening era. The radical feminism of the 60s and 70s gave birth to a cultural reshaping. And I appreciate Pastor Ben and the Adult Bible Fellowship taking on the the topic of male and female created he them in an age where people are actually able to go out and make documentaries simply asking the question, what is a woman? This passage assumes that we understand the difference between male and female. Yes, there's an unalterable genetic code that colors the DNA of both the man and the woman, so that regardless of one's sociological theories, there'll always be a biological reality that God created them male and female. But there ought to be also recognized that there's a difference to be known in the home. This passage, for instance, is going to talk about the young women being keepers at home. How appallingly archaic that sounds. But this passage is God's Word, and it's fit for all times in all cultures. And it speaks of the necessity of the young women finding instruction from the older women in the congregation so that they too can be keepers at home. Here is a universal norm that God has given to us. The Word of God tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 4 and verse 23. And in a culture and a day and age where such instruction has been banished in most places, we have to begin by looking at this passage, recognizing that this passage is dealing with God-ordained differences, differences biological, differences in our homes, familial differences in our family and how our family should run. Ecclesiastical differences. In other words, there are differences in how we govern within the local church context. Take your Bibles for just a moment and turn back to the instruction that Paul gave to Timothy in a pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Timothy, pastoring, of course, in Ephesus, Titus, in Crete, The Apostle Paul enlarges upon the instruction with regard to the differences between men and women, especially as how those differences play out in local church ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we practice 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first two verses, every Sunday morning when we gather together. After all, there's an exhortation in verse 1 that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may live quiet and peaceable lives with godliness and honesty. This is good and acceptable 
in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. I appreciated Pastor Ben's prayer this morning, praying for one of our United States senators, not knowing whether the man is a professing believer or not. It's appropriate that we would pray that such a one come to know Christ as Savior. But then we read in verse 9, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. And here comes the difference in the local church. Verse 11, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. For I suffer not, or I don't allow a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, some people may have at the bottom of that text a Bible that actually says, several of the newer reference Bibles actually say, this passage was written to those who are worshiping in Ephesus. And because they were worshiping in Ephesus where the women were not educated, it would have been an affront for uneducated women to be teaching in the local church in Ephesus. It would have violated their cultural norm. And then some reference Bibles actually say, in fact, I know that the Life Application Bible says, but we're no longer living in such cultural conditions. Women today, having the blessing of education, this no longer applies. That's an interesting footnote, but it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because he says in verse 12, I I suffer not a woman to teach or usurp authority over the man. Now he's speaking about local church ministry, but to be in silence. Why? Verse 13, because of the uneducated conditions in Ephesus? (laughs) No. Why? Because Adam was first formed than Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. He draws all the way back to the creation order. And from that creation order, he draws out this New Testament principle that when God's people gather together in the New Testament church, it ought to be that the men are teaching. Well, is that a universal norm? No. There are some adjustments to it, of course. We're going to find in Titus chapter 2 that the older women are to teach the younger women, especially that which becomes domestic skills. But what about children? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to write to Timothy, and he's going to say to Timothy, from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation. And he's going to give thanks for Timothy's mother and grandmother. For that mother and grandmother had brought Timothy to the point of conversion and been a blessing in that end. Women teaching women, women teaching children, absolutely, and thank the Lord. Women taking the pulpit and leading in local church ministry in that way, or teaching in that way, especially among the men, prohibited not because of Ephesus, but because of a creation order. We're living in a generation that is seeking to erase the image of God, that image that's painted by two genders. And a fullness of our knowledge of the image of God is requiring us to understand two genders. Male and female created he them. In the image of God created he them. You'll never have a full understanding of the image of God without a full appreciation of masculinity and femininity. The Apostle Paul himself is going to write to the Thessalonians. And he's going to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I was among you like a nurse. And he speaks in a very feminine fashion there who cherishes 
those to whom she is ministering. There are those feminine concepts that help us to understand God's grace and God's love. Not that a man cannot have grace and love, but without the understanding of the image of God, both in the feminine and in the masculine, we'll have a warped sense. There is no unigender in God's Word. There are distinct genders in God's Word, and those distinct genders have distinct roles in our homes, in our church, and in everyday life. So we turn back to Titus chapter 2, having established this first truth, that there are God-ordained differences between men and women. There's a second truth that needs to be highlighted in this passage, and that truth is this. Aged believers are very important. Aged believers are very important. Job chapter 12 and verse 12. Job says, with the ancient is wisdom and length of days, understanding. Older believers are very important. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 32 says, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head. What's a hoary head? Good old English word that means the gray hairs or the white hairs. Those whose hairs have changed color to demonstrate the glory and the beauty of their maturity. Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man and fear thy God, for I am the Lord. Rise up before the hoary head. What's he saying? He's saying, stand up and show respect. The first time I traveled to India, I find must, found myself often embarrassed by the kind, kindness and the humility of the people who were there. One of the things that I found most interesting, as in many uh, countries outside of America, always the people in India would make kind of a bow as you approach them. The men who wore something akin to a skirt that was tied up to the waist, like a Middle Easterner in Christ's day, would loosen that from the top, from the waist, and let it drop down to the ankles as they would bow before someone who was a guest who was coming to speak to show and demonstrate their respect. But always, always, whether it was men or women, when older ones came into the room, there was the universal expectation that everyone stood. And coming into groups of children in India, I always saw the boys and girls stand. And I reflected on it, of course, from Leviticus chapter 19, and recognized that God wants us to demonstrate our respect for the aged. After all, Proverbs 16 verse 31 says, the hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. Now listen carefully. We're living in a youth-oriented culture that diminishes and demeans those who are older and pours all of its affection and attention on those who are younger. That attention may be in the scheduling. Community events, yes, there are some for the older, but I don't see many of us racing out of the parking lot to get to a senior citizen event this evening. But my, if it was a ball game, you'd see a whole different cultural experience. Everyone racing, it seems, to follow after youth, and everyone pulling back, it seems, from giving admiration to those who are aged. Here's an article that I found interesting. It says, it started as a local news story 
An article in a Minnesota newspaper reported over the weekend that a church asked older parishioners to leave in an effort to attract younger families. As outrage and accusations of age discrimination grew, the story was picked up by more and more news outlets. This happened in Cottage Grove, Minnesota, near my wife's hometown. So it continues in December, Dan Wetterstrom, the lead pastor of Grove United Methodist Church, announced that come June, the Cottage Grove location would be temporarily closing its doors. The campus would reopen later that year under the leadership of Jeremy Peters, a 32-year-old pastor who had experience in developing community relationships and new worship styles. Wetterstrom's notes from that meeting were emailed to congregants who weren't able to attend, he said, and the news was met with a lot of emotion. Our folks love their campus. They're devoted to each other, Wetterstrom said. When I shared that, that news, they were hurt, dip, deeply disappointed, some surprised, and out of that came a lot of hard feelings. For 70-year-old Bill Gackstecker, who had been a member of the congregation for about 10 years, the message was that only young families were wanted. He said the note he received said that the campus would be going dark and its parishioners, many of whom were older, were no longer allowed to go there. I couldn't believe it, he told CNN. Such things are happening, maybe not so overtly, but they're happening subtly in many churches. What a shame. How unfair that those who have invested their lives, their prayers, their talents, and their abilities in a local church would suddenly seem to feel that time has passed them by, they're no longer welcomed, and after all, it's all about the adoration of the youth culture. Not only unfair, but terribly unwise. Let's not forget, folks, that Moses was 80 when he began to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land. I attended a seminary that was founded by Dr. R.B. Clearwaters, founded when he was in his 50s. Shortly afterward, he founded Pillsbury Baptist Baba College when he was approaching 60 years of age, and some of the graduates of that school are in this room this evening. Great things can be accomplished by those who are older and wiser. And so, even Timothy is told in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that when he needed to appeal to those who were older than he, he was after all a younger pastor, he should speak to the older men as unto fathers. He should speak to the older women as if he were speaking to mothers. Let me give some pastoral and fatherly advice this evening. Train your children to walk slowly around those who are mature, to stand, to give honor to those who are older, to look them in the eye, to address them by name, and to demonstrate what God's Word teaches, that there's honor to be found and wisdom to be found among the older. Now, with those two truths ringing in our ears, we have some instructions in this passage for aged men. The aged men are instructed, and it's likely that by this time, there were some aged men in the church at Crete. After all, Acts chapter 2 tells us in verse 11 that at the day of Pentecost, Cretans were there, and they heard the Word of God in their own language. That was 30 years before Paul writes to Titus. Some of those Cretans who came to Christ during the time of Pentecost have grown, grown older. Well, how old are these that are described in verse 2 as the aged men? Well, one of the Greek philosophers, Hippocrates, recommended seven age divisions. 
So it wasn't just childhood, adolescence, middle age, or young adult, middle age, older age, and senior citizen. There were seven different distinct divisions that the Grecians considered when they talked about age differentiation. The word that the Apostle Paul uses here in verse 2 that's translated for us aged men is a word presbytes, similar to the word presbyteros, which means one who is serving in local church ministry as part of the presbytery or as an elder. The presbytes was the next to the last division that Hippocrates recommended. So it seems he's speaking here in this passage. We can't be dogmatic about this, but he seems to be speaking to those who are in their 60s and above. And what does the Apostle Paul say, say to those who are in their 60s and above? Well, he says first, they need to be people that are sober. The idea of being sober there means to be careful. It's a word that originally meant to be one who totally abstained from any use of alcohol, any drinking of wine. But as the word morphed, it came to be meaning something closer to being careful. Not that wine should not be considered. You're going to see in verse 3 of this same text that the aged women are also to be challenged, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine. It seems that some measure of substance abuse was not something only that could happen to the youth, but especially something that could be a peril to those who are growing older. And that seems to even be true in our generation. We are living in a culture that has been under the pressures of the pharmaceutical industry, not just in pricing, but also in taking many drugs to alter one's condition. In the times of the Apostle Paul and the church there in Crete, there was one drug in particular, if you will, that seemed to be most effective to the older generation. Paul says, now, you senior men, you need to be careful. You need to be careful. The word here, nephalios, originally meant totally abstaining from any intoxicant. It's come to mean something more along the lines of being careful. And you know the best way to be careful? The best way to be careful when it comes to anything having to do with intoxicants is never start. I never have a bad day and think, boy, I wish I had a drink. I'm thankful for that. And we're living in a generation where there's a whole lot of tension on this topic in particular within the evangelical community. So what does the Bible say? Listen to principle. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. For those who ask the question regarding, shall I or shall I not drink intoxicating beverages? All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. They're not beneficial. All things are lawful, but all things, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Do you realize that studies indicate that between one in eight and one in nine people who ever pick up a drink and imbibe, between one and eight and one and nine will become an alcoholic. No one volunteers for it. Alcoholism is a tremendous plague. And alcoholism in our generation is something that we can fall into far easier than in the times of the Apostle Paul 
After all, there was no distillation of alcohol until the Middle Ages, about 1000 A.D. And with distillation comes an increasing potency in the alcohol that's distributed today. In other words, today's wine is not New Testament and Old Testament wine. And so one in eight or one in nine, I will not be brought under the power of any. All things are lawful for me, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful. I will not be brought under the power of any. And the Word of God tells us we have a responsibility not to put before others a stumbling block. Violent crime, sexual crimes, crimes of impairment, they're all around us. Older men, be sober. Speaking of your overall character, but the Word itself ties back to a special discretion when it comes to intoxicants. Older men, be grave. It means to be honorable. Don't be frivolous. Don't be trivial. Don't be caught up in that which is vulgar. Don't morph into the dirty old man or the goofball grandpa that has no real life purpose. Maintain in your life a prayerful purpose. Be an honorable man. I love the story of John Wesley who was asked the question at the age of 83, if he had any regrets in his current situation. Now, you have to understand that by the age of 83, John Wesley had preached over 40,000 sermons and traveled over 250,000 miles on horseback to bring the gospel both to England as well as America. Anything going on in your life right now that you regret? And 83-year-old John Wesley responded, well, he said, I have to confess. At 83, I tend to linger longer in bed in the morning. I find myself seldom able to arise much before 5.30. And then he continued, and I find myself growing somewhat more weary. In fact, my eyes are so tired that after 15 hours of study, I can barely read any longer. That was John Wesley. But John Wesley impacted the world. Honorable older men who maintain a purpose can impact the culture, the culture of a church, and the culture of their neighborhood. Be temperate, he says. That word means to be sensible. Aged men ought to model the maturity which comes from walking with the Lord for years, learning to control their passions. And then a list of what spirituality looks like among older men. He continues that these older men be sound. There's the word that speaks of health. It's our Greek word, huganos, from which we get the word hygienic. That you be healthy. How? Healthy in faith. Healthy in charity. Healthy in patience. Sound in faith. Not questioning God. Not filled with doubts. But delighting in the promises of God. Healthy in faith. Healthy in love. Not crusty and severe. But a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of grandpa or man. A man who's come to know the blessing of walking with the Lord and can demonstrate that blessing in his love for others. And a person, person of patience, which after all is one of the fruits of the Spirit. As you come to verse 3, the attention turns from the aged men now to the aged women. And I'm sure that in the church at Crete, even as in this church this evening here in Indianapolis, there were very, very few who qualified 
to hear with care verse 3. After all, very few will admit to being aged women. So who are these aged women? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul talks about widows who are widows indeed. And he defines the widows indeed in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 9 as being threescore. In other words, they're over the age of 60. He's speaking here to women who are past childbearing age and typically past child-rearing responsibilities. So once again, they're going to be those who are approaching 60. And what should they be like? What difference can they make? I picked up an article by Charles Spurgeon that I found to be a great blessing. This passage is going to talk about the difference that they make in helping the younger women, especially in the congregation, to learn and respect domestic skills. As an older man, Spurgeon wrote these words, they will ask when I am gone, what was the secret of my ministry? He continues forward and he says, I will tell you, it's been twofold, the truth of the message and my mother's life. She adorned the doctrines. She made it comfortable to live with and her son found it so. This passage is going to focus on the home, but immediately we focus on the characteristics of those aged women as the Spirit of God addresses them. He speaks to their deeds, that they would be in behavior as becometh holiness. Here, the Greek word that is used speaks of priestly service, that their behavior is like that of a priest, cautious, careful, purposeful. It reminds us of Anna who in Luke chapter 2 at the age of 84 was ministering about the things of the temple when she saw Jesus. Did you know that in the early church, especially those churches planted in the pagan cities, the aged women of the church often put together a schedule of touring the city to find abandoned babies and abandoned children to whom they could minister and bring up in the faith. This passage speaks of these aged women, their deeds. They are priestly in their activities. They understand the joy of interceding in prayer for others. They understand the joy of bringing God's message to those who will hear. And so their declarations are considered. They're not false accusers. The word translated false accusers here is the Greek word diabolos. It's used over 60 times in the New Testament. and typically, of course, speaks of the one who is the slanderer the one who accuses the believers night and day, the one who is the father of lies, Satan. And we're reminded that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. And as we grow older, men and women together, whether you be part of the Romeos or the Juliets, and if you're gathering together, be careful where your conversation goes, not false accusers. And their desires are in focus not given to much wine. Again, sadly, for the older ones with the aches and pains and infirmities along the way, often there's the temptation of resorting to some substance rather than resorting to the Spirit. Their duties are considered here, and we'll enlarge upon this next week, that they be teachers of good things. You see, when their example matches their expression, Aged women become a powerful source of wisdom 
to be given to those younger women, that they would teach the younger women to be sober, verse 4, and to love their husbands. Have you ever heard somebody say something really simple, really unwise, and I use simple to mean without knowledge? I've sometimes heard people preach, there's no commandment in the New Testament that the, the wife love her husband. The husband's to love his wife as Christ loved the church, but no, no commandment for the wife to love her husband. No, folks, that's assumed here that the older women are teaching the younger women to love their husbands and not just love their husbands, but to love their children. Now, how can an older woman do that? Well, I'll leave that to the Spirit of God to teach you, but let me recommend that you don't teach the virtue and the blessing of homemaking skills and family values by speaking poorly about the man that you gave covenant to honor when you shared your marital vows. You don't cause the younger ones to think well of domestic skills and loving their children when you sigh and say, it was so tough when I went through the child-rearing years. Those expressions need to be carefully guarded. This passage says there's a tremendous duty on the part of the older women to teach the younger women. A missionary to India was asked many years ago, how can we pray for your ministry? The aged missionary there in India responded ever so wisely. He said, pray that our Indian church would have more godly grandmas. The missionary understood that without that group of virtuous women teaching the instruction of the New Testament would become very difficult. The church is to adorn the doctrines so that we can be attractive to the world. The world, after all, is disfigured by sin. So let me give you an assignment this evening. You ready? Children, let me talk to you first. The children in this congregation tonight, show respect when older people speak to you. Stand up before the hoary head, as the Bible says. Look them in the eye. Address them when they come by in the foyer. Be careful. Sometimes boys and girls in energy find themselves running. Running in the foyer can be a dangerous thing. As Pastor Taylor says, we have a lot of Canaanites here at Colonial Hills Baptist Church. A Canaanite is someone who's come to church with a cane. And how dishonorable it would be if you and your running would knock over a grandma or a grandpa rather than rising up and thanking the Lord for them. For parents, teach your children to show respect to the older generation. Don't be so focused on the younger generation that you fail to see the wisdom of God's Word. You see, we live in a generation that has made much of extended adolescence. <laughs> adolescence now goes into the 30s and 40s. And then made much of early retirement and effectively diminished that fruit-bearing time from which we're going to stand before the Lord in judgment one day. Be careful. Parents, teach your children to show respect. And if you don't have a godly grandparent around, adopt one. One of the great 
blessings and treasures of Colonial Hills Baptist Church has been the treasure of four generations here Sunday by Sunday. The children, their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. And in a world where family values have faded, what a joy to know that we have prospective adoptive grandparents who can model these things for our boys and girls. So can I speak to a moment, for a moment to the grandparents? Look around. Be an encouragement to a little one. It's easy for any of us in any generation to cluster with those who feel the same aches and pains and know the same challenges. But look around. And then for the leaders in ministry, that we would listen and learn from the wisdom of those who are round about. And to the aged, remember, God has been preparing you for the ministry all those years for you to fulfill now in a very special way. So may God help your conduct to match the integrity of what we've learned this evening in God's Word. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.